0: Olive Branch Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anwar Mahajni. In this podcast, I interview activists with ties to Israel and Palestine who identify as peace activists and are working on ending Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories. Today, I interview Dr. Yair, He is the Senior Lecturer in Israeli Studies and Head of the Center for Jewish Studies in SOAS University of London. He's also a signatory of the Jerusalem Declaration on Anti-Semitism. Yael, thank you very much for agreeing to be interviewed for this podcast. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and uh, share your your story and experience with me and the listeners. I was wondering if um, we could start by talking a little bit before we delve into your story um, about the Jerusalem Declaration on Anti-Semitism. Uh, I actually don't know much about it, so I think maybe it would be good to provide a background to our uh, listeners and what that is and why did you decide to sign it.
1: So um, the declaration was written by a group of scholars of anti-Semitism, racism, and scholars of Israel-Palestine. That uh, convened in Van Leer Institutes um, over a year, I think I was not part of the people who uh, wrote it by I joined uh, later. The idea is that there is um, a sense that there is a growing need for clarification around where how does anti-Semitism intersects with the conversation on israel Palestine? So I think that general sense among people who signed the declaration is that it does intersect in some ways and it's important for us to be able to say when something is anti-semitic but also there's ways in which we should distinguish between talking about israel and talking about jews and this is in response there's a attempt that goes, uh, a few years back uh, around the IRA, the IHRA definition, which uh, many of us felt was not not clear enough and could be used for harmful a uh, mixing of of and and a lack of clarity in a way that is counterproductive both the conversation on Israel passing but also the conversation about anti-Semitism so that's that's why I joined. I think that's a challenger is going to be with us for, you know, for, for, for years to come, but it's become even more uh, so in the last uh, five, 10 years, and we need to develop the tools to, to, to think about these things. And that's, that's what the, the, the uh, declaration tries to do, to disentangle these issues rather than uh, mix them together in a harmful way.
0: And why was it important for you to sign the declaration?
1: So, I say this: I I started to be involved around issues uh, like this on campus level because I'm I'm the lecturer for Israel studies, but I'm also the head of the Center for Jewish Studies. Sometimes the uh, university management uh, contacted me because they had issues or complaints around anti-Semitism, and sometimes I felt the need to, to actually to say things. So I saw it, it was a kind of responsibility, first and foremost, towards students. Now, I'm Israeli, and I grew up in Israel, and what I realized also is that that, uh, that didn't put me in a very good position to understand what anti-Semitism is. Because if anti-Semitism, you know, in, in London or in the US or anywhere, it's primarily about Jews that live in these countries. And uh, they have an experience of being a minority, religious minority, ethnic minority, however you want to call it. And they grew up in that awareness of being a minority and they can pick up on certain things which I can't really pick up on. And I grew up as a majority, member of majority, you know, privileged majority in a Jewish state, in a Jewish dominated state. And therefore, I knew theoretically what anti-Semitism is. And you, know, I, you know, there were stories in my family and so forth about Europe, but I didn't have the visceral personal experience of, of how it feels. It did, and also I, I found that it didn't threaten me it, it, when I saw it and I didn't counter it, in the UK, I found it pathetic or annoying, but it wasn't threatening in the same, <laughs> in the same manner that I think it does for if you grow up in that kind of culture. So it was clear to me I have to learn more and I wanted to listen to students and I kind of, since then, and that's been like seven years, I always, if, when there's an opportunity, I always talk with students to understand Jewish students to understand how they feel and where do they see problems and how do they understand their Jewish identity and what does antisemitism in this regard means? And that's kind of where I started to be involved in questions and antisemitism, kind of responding to students on campus. So on the one hand, I heard various people saying, oh, there's lots of antisemitism or uh, and so forth. On the other hand, I know that I'm, I'm teaching on a campus that is very, has very strong Palestine activism. So, you know, I wanted to, to understand how do these issues relate In what, what can we say, you know, in a reasonable way, this is anti-Semitic and what can we say, no, this is Palestine activism and it shouldn't be, you know, you may not, not like it, you may, you know, you may find it annoying or uh, whatever, but it's not anti-Semitic. So that was... Um, You know, in a very real-life, ground-level way, I saw that uh, there's a problem, that the conversation is very muddied by, you know, by the the general discourse on this question in the media, and, you know, including in in, uh, the way that various Jewish groups cannot agree within themselves, what is anti-Semitic and what isn't. So I became more and more involved, and my concern... Now, I have to say that, that he, uh, this became more intensified in the UK towards, after 2015, with the Labour Party and, and uh, under Jeremy Corbyn, but this became a kind of a snowball of a, of a crisis, where gradually more and more elements of the Jewish community here lost confidence in the Labour Party uh, and that was a very real crisis. So that was also the context in which, but I also wanted for us to be able to distinguish between Labour Party politics and campus because universities are quite different in terms of that they are places where debate and discussion should take place. That's the place for discussion and that's the place for ideas. It's a it's a different context from political context. So that's the context in which I decided to uh, to join the declaration and 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 promote it because I think it's a very it, it's absolutely crucial because um, there is a problem with many oh with some people that they think they're criticizing Israel but actually they're using anti-Semitic language and they're talking about. Diaspora Jews who may or may not be related to Israel. There's also a problem within the Jewish community, which often is unable to distinguish between what is criticism of Israel and what is manifestations of racism. And that debate requires further thoughts and clarification. And I think that's really important because that would allow us to have more meaningful conversation both on Israel Palestine but also on the future of Jews. In the UK or North America and and, and as well.
0: Mm -hmm. I liked a few things that you said there, I liked that when you said it's my responsibility towards students to engage in these conversations and kind of learn more and understand their experience with Jewish students. And I appreciated you, you know you kind of trying to say that we need to clarify when is you know when critique of Israel. You know, when, is, when, when an action is anti-Semitism and when it is an actual legitimate critique to promote, you know, Palestinian rights and uh, in, in the Holy Land. So I think the responsibility towards students is something that I've always that I've been thinking about as a teacher, as well as a professor like to allow this, to create this environment where discussion is, and ideas are debated, but in a way that is respectful, right, and engaging to everyone and not recreating trauma in the classroom that I think is uh, fascinating. So what do you think is your responsibility as a scholar towards students and campus community in general, and then beyond that, beyond the campus community to the general public?
1: I mean... First of all, there's an active duty of care. So that means that from my perspective, I have to be proactive. I can't wait until people complain. I have to try to have my kind of finger on the pulse. And that's something that I understood, you know, seven years ago. It's, It's not, you know, it's not enough to wait for complaints because often people don't complain or they complain when it's really, gone too far. And when they complain, we go into formal proceedings, etc. Ideally, we should be talking about these things earlier. So that's kind of proactively seeking out these conversations is an important uh, side. Second is to listen to listen and to listen carefully to students when they speak, even if you know, I mean of course, students get things wrong, or I may disagree with students. But even if I disagree with them, I have to treat them seriously. Now that may seem obvious, but a lot of you know, and I'm talking about real life experiences here. You know, if a if a Jewish student who happened to be right wing and pro-Israel comes to complain about anti-Semitism, there will be those who say well, this is clearly a Zionism. This is clearly about Israel. They will dismiss the complaint, you know, without even listening. And, you know, I think that's just, um, in a way, it's self-fulfilling prophecy in a way, because if you dismiss people without hearing what they have to say, then it kind of creates an environment that is already hostile towards the students. whatever their political views on Israel it is beside the point is, do they have a story? Do they have experience? Is, is something wrong? And then I think there's assumption that victims of racism have to be virtuous. You know, they, they must be like, they're progressive and so, it doesn't work like this. People can have horrible views or can be actually can do bad things to other people, but can be victims. And to be able to have this conversation, which, you know, you don't have to be, you know, poor, virtuous, you know, super progressive in order to have a right to speak is important. So the very first thing is that you come to complain, I'm going to listen. And that's the first duty. We may end up saying, you know, a student comes and says, I go into campus and I feel attacked. Why? Because there's a huge Palestinian flag. It's like, okay you may feel uncomfortable, but it's a flag, has every right to be there if other students want it, you know, in their space. You know, it's not reasonable to say that the very presence of Palestinian flag is anti-Semitic. It's totally unreasonable and it would be racist towards other students to demand that they remove it, right? uh, uh, So some complaints may be unreasonable. Some people may be can't, you know, sometimes people are uncomfortable, but they have to live with it. And sometimes people are exposed to vitriol or to racist comments or uh, racist attitudes against them because they're Jewish. And and that's where you, you need to actually to clear where the lines are and where the rules of the game. But I think the first principle is that you listen somebody comes and says that you know they have a an experience they feel unwelcome or they feel that uh, there's a, uh, an environment against them uh, you uh, listen carefully to what they have to say and then and then proceed from there and that's kind of uh but the duty of care is to create a, an inclusive environment now as universities it's a, it's a challenging task because how do we balance that with our commitment to freedom of speech, to academic freedom? When is, you know, offensive speech becomes something that goes beyond the limits and become racist, becomes a form of harassment. It's not always so obvious. And that's where we need to have these conversations. It's not just about anti-Semitism; It's also about transphobia. It's about uh, Islamophobia. It's about uh, anti-black racism, et cetera. So, we work in universities where we all have academic freedom to also to offend and also to say horrible things if we want to if we feel the need to but sometimes it goes beyond that and becomes racist and the, and becomes a form of harassment against students and that's where we need to intervene so these are difficult conversations but the first principle is work proactively and also to um, not to assume bad faith, I think the the discussion that already assumes that other people have bad faith is a dead end.
0: Mm-hmm. and I you know you have a good presence on Twitter. Um, you do express your opinions and views on issues related to uh, to israel Palestine. I know your research is also in that area. So I was wondering first if you could tell us a little bit about your research and then if you could talk a little bit about your public presence on Twitter and how that influences your relationship to students on campus. I don't know if that's too much.
1: (laughs) So generally about my research, I, I mean, I started with questions of material culture and urban culture. I think most of my work in the last 15 years say was around these issues. And understanding of modernity through material culture and through urban life. Uh, what this means in practice is that I look at so my book is about uh, textuality in public space, about signs, about graffiti, about adverts, uh, street names, etc, and in Jerusalem between the middle of the 19th century, the late Ottoman period until 1948. So I ask how these how text? appears in a very material form in the street and how people read it in Arabic and Hebrew. And the idea is to see how these experiences of modernity are entangled with each other, similar and different in some ways. Part of the idea is to step back from, you know, the obsession fascination with political events and political chronology, and to try to think more broadly in a kind of longer periods approach to understanding israel palestine it's um which is a it, it's a it's a challenge because we you know something as pivotal and as crucial as nineteen forty eight war clearly casts a huge shadow until today and kind of in many ways never that were never-ended, but how do we understand it? Do we understand not as a discrete event, but as kind of larger trajectories? That's kind of, and how do we understand what happens before that? So I try to answer these questions through material culture and through everyday experience of real people. In that sense, it's kind of mixed between social and cultural history and to look a lot about real people's lived experience and to understand the meaning of ideology through, not through ideas, but how they operate in real life. So, you know, know, for example, by names chosen for the streets or by how people interact with a place so charged like the the Western Wall in Jerusalem, all all those things are in my book. Uh, I'm now moving uh, more towards questions of race, identity, migration. In my current projects, I'm I'm currently trying to write a second book on uh, Jewish immigrants from Central and Eastern Europe in Palestine, Egypt, and Lebanon, and their integration and acculturation in Arab society and culture. So um, that kind of migration to Palestine, later Israel, is Usually understood through the lens of Zionism. You know, it's about Zionism, Jewish state, return to Zion, whatever. I try to think of it as migration, and when migrants usually integrate. So, and that's also what happens in Palestine of the late 19th century or early 20th century. But it's usually forgotten. So, you, how do European Jews become Arab or Arabized? That's kind of the question I'm. Trying to ask in the current question and current research, and it's also related to how, how we understand race in this conflict because there's a more and more I think interest in race and how do we relate the experience in Israel-Palestine to white supremacy and, and these kind of questions. And I think that, and I think that's a really really complicated question. That is. Um, often gets very, very simple answers. Either it is a simple case of white supremacy or it's not. It has nothing to do with white supremacy. Both of these answers seem wrong to me, but I'm kind of trying to extrapolate it. When do European Jews in Palestine start to think of themselves as European or as white? It's not an obvious, there's no obvious answers to this. And and it's very clear that they didn't before a certain moment. So that's kind of where I'm going in, in terms of my recent, it's clearly influenced by the general discussion that we've having in recent years where race becomes more and more um, a factor, and race and racism. And it's partly, you know, my, my interest in antisemitism also relates to this. How do, how do we understand antisemitism as part of these racial dynamics? Now, the second part of your question is about um, about Twitter and public engagement, I have to say that uh, I became more and more active over the last, I guess, two three years. And I'm on research leave, so I I had a limited experience of how to pe- the students relate to this. But I did I did um, use Twitter in classroom. So one of kind of the exercises I gave to students um that was three years ago is to try to sum up an article in a thread of tweets and so i kind of we broke to various groups and they had to take an article and kind of write seven uh, tweets that summed up the article the direction of the argument and why it's important and so kind of to use it as a as an analytical tool to help understand things kind of in a in this kind of succinct and slightly fragmented way that Twitter allows us to. It's really fun to see former students on, I, on, on Twitter. And that's, uh, you know, whether they went on to do research or they just comment on the world, that's that's um, that's really nice. And generally, I think it's, for me, there's something very re- rewarding about social media is that You know, when you write an article, it takes you two years to get it published. You know, and that's a kind of, that's a good scenario. And then it's read by a handful of scholars, and maybe somebody assigns it to students. And maybe in five years, people will kind of say, ah, yeah, yeah, I read this article. But it's still a kind of conference-based scenario. And that's kind of frustrating, because if you want to fit into public debates, and if you think what you say in your research has relevance beyond that, then um, social media is actually a very, very powerful way to do that, to intervene in public discussion from an informed position and to relate what you do in your research to, to the public debate. And the response is immediate, and that's the kind of really nice thing, that you don't have to wait you get peer review immediately sometimes it's very rude but you get it immediately so in that sense i find it uh, rewarding it's also of course wasting a lot of my time but uh, <laughs> but it's fun in that sense it's it's uh, it's the challenge is to kind of to keep sanity and to kind of brush aside the, the unpleasant performative crazy aspects of the discussion which i'm not i, I don't enjoy and i try to to not to interact in that manner mm-hmm.
0: yeah i don't know as you know as a palestinian i feel like for a lot of palestinian activists and scholars that are on twitter they get attacked extensively and sometimes even within their own institutions that could cause problems right if you're at a more like religious catholic institution with conservative students versus you know more accommodating institution and i i usually am careful about certain things that i say and write you know i feel like i do censor myself sometimes (laughs) just because i am aware of that and i also you know i there's also this thing where you don't want students to kind of already assume what I think, which will prevent them sometimes from saying what they think. It's kind of, it's a very delicate balance there that I, I don't know, maybe I'm overthinking it, but maybe also because of being a minority in multiple contexts, right? The minority in Israel, a minority in the US kind of shapes my understanding and experience <laughs> of these issues.
1: I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, and also there's a lot of people who will take your words out of context. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that's, it's very difficult to anticipate. But I, when I write, I always think, you know, five times about, could this be read the wrong way? Could it be used against me to say something which I don't really believe and so forth? So, and that's a bit tiring. I know some people have their tweets erased so that there's not this kind of huge archive for people to mine and find stuff against you. And it is tiring. And, it, and, and absolutely, people, you know, use it in a, in, in a way that is not forgiving and quite hostile. And that's something that we have to keep in mind.
0: Mm-hmm. So my next question, uh, you told us a little bit about your scholarship, about your teaching, and I'm interested in the question of, you know, the relationship between activism and scholarship. First of all, do you define yourself an activist? And how do you feel about the label of peace activist? And do you think academia and activism kind of intersect or are you one of those people who view them separate?
1: It's funny because I I think academia monitor they wrote a few uh, unfavorable pieces about me and they define me as an activist. I, I wouldn't, I mean, I was, I was involved in the 2000s in activism in the UK, but not around issues of Israel-Palestine so much, more about climate change and the, the first kind of protest camps against the government's failure to do anything about it and, and the Iraq war. In 2003, where, where I went to lots of demos and, etc. And then I was a student and I had the time to do these things. So I, I, today, other than going to an occasional demonstration, I'm, I don't consider myself an activist, I mean I, you know I have colleagues in Israel who are very active in a variety of ways. One colleague from Tel Aviv University, Avner Vishnitzel who um, just got into the news because as part of Combinance for Peace, he was uh, detained and handcuffed and uh, they put a blindfold on his eyes and so forth. The, f- the image went everywhere. So that's, I mean, that's really, for me, I, I would feel um, wrong to claim that label when, when there are people who put themselves on the line in very dangerous situations. But I I do try to be, I do see as my responsibility to contribute to public discussion around these issues. And I think given that I have thought, researched, written on these issues for now 20 years or so academically, it's not enough to teach students and to, um, you know, to write scholarly articles. I think it's, I mean, I can actually contribute something to the public discussion. Peace has become a difficult word. I think, I think that's, um, um, I wrote something about this in Hebrew um, a few years ago, how, you know, the English word peace comes from Latin "pax," which is, more in terms of a contract, a kind of formal obligation. And that's what the way people used to think. That's what peace meant. You know, this formal agreement between Israelis and Palestinians and and so forth, which, and that approach failed. But when you think about both Arabic and Hebrew, shalom or salam, it's not really about a formal agreement between quote unquote two sides. Salam and shalom is a situation of, uh, in an idealized sense, harmony, good health, safety, and so forth. So it's a it's a it's a much more holistic word that means being uh, in a good state and in and in a peaceful state, rather than to imagine it as a kind of formal agreement. And in that sense, in the Arabic or Hebrew sense of the word, I definitely identify. I think that is still very much, a, you know, a necessary a necessary project. Specifically in, in Israel Palestine, we need to move beyond this idea of a bilateral agreement between two sides and to understand. You know, I, I do think that we need to think, whether explicitly or implicitly, about decolonization and, and, uh, and what it means. Now, that can mean very, very different things and people will have very different ideas, but we have a, an entrenched system of power that extends both within Israel and the occupied territories. And in whatever political scenario, two states, one state, uh, that system which is based on privilege and supremacy for one group, has to be challenged and reformed or changed uh, entirely. And I think that's the kind of, uh, in terms of a political project, that's a political project I'm, I would identify with. It doesn't have a, a very clear roadmap in the immediate future. And I think that's the something we have to, except that there's no clear roadmap in that sense.
0: So this actually brings me to one interesting question that I always ask activists about, specifically Jewish activists who are, you know, Israeli. How did you come, up, come to... Believing in decolonization and understanding the hierarchy and systems of power that exist within Israel and the, you know, West Bank and Gaza, uh, because it's not taken for granted. You know, for Israelis to use words that occupation, colonization, sub colonial, like it's, it's always like, oh no, it's not real. These words don't describe the reality on the ground, right? So, for you, how did you arrive to these understandings and even your interest in your research? Because you said you're. You moved from computer science, right, to something else. So if you could just tell me a little bit about your journey and your intellectual journey, I guess, to where you are now.
1: I mean, I think it's a long story. I mean, it has various things that came together, both things that I read and kind of engaged with intellectually that uh, at some moment cohered and connected with personal experience i don't think these things are never just because somebody explains to you in a very persuasive manner or you read something very compelling and then you change all your views and it's not enough to have the personal experience if you don't have the concepts to work these things through you may end up at a dead end and not pursue this but um so i so i think these that kind of intellectual journey requires both both things, both the kind of uh, being open intellectually, but also being having access to uh, different kinds of experiences. And on the experience side, I think in in the UK, both being a kind of uh, being a you know a PhD student uh, in a in quite uh, a poor situation and and um, being a migrant with uncertain immigration status was a very very important experience to me to understand things i mean if you've been after being humiliated by a borders official once or twice you see you i think you understand things differently and uh, and, you know, for me, I, I mean, I, it's very clear to me that I'm always on the side of the refugee and, to begin with and, and never on the side of the border official to begin with. But I don't know if I would be there if I didn't have the personal experience of being in this kind of, on these temporary visas and being have, having to explain myself to hostile border control. So that's kind of one experience. Another is meeting Palestinian and Arab colleagues as, as peers. And I think that's really important. I think that's something that I didn't have in Israel. You know, I grew up in Israel for, I left when I was 28, I think. And of course there were Palestinian students in my university when I did the first degree, etc. But there was minimal to no contact between Jewish and Palestinian students. And it's only when I came out of Israel and I started to you know ma and then phd and i started meeting people in conferences and i started to develop friendships and there was something about being removed from the situation which meant that you don't also you don't necessarily need to speak all the time as Israel person but also you um it allows these kind of encounters which were you know incredibly important because it's when you see people as peers, as colleagues, as, as people you learn from, it's a completely different experience than, you know, being in a situation where you, you know, Israeli Jews meet Palestinians usually as service providers, as people that work for them and, and these kind of, you know, and how many Jewish Israelis have a Palestinian as a boss? Not many. It's very rare. And that's, and these kind of experiences really are, I think eye-opening in in, in certain regards. Now, in terms of the, for me to kind of to use the colonial lens, it, it was kind of a, of a, a journey of kind of understanding. Because if you look at my PhD, it's it's not there yet. I still talk about men in terms of you know a national conflict. You know, I you know clearly the British are the colonial authority, but I don't think about well, I don't. Assign so much importance to the colonial or colonizing dimension of of Zionism and the Zionist movement. And that's something that I gradually realized more and more, partly because of the conversation that is generally happening in the in the literature, which kind of demands that you engage with these categories. And once you engage with them, it's if you're serious about this, it's very difficult to deny that dimension. I think that's uh, if you research early Zionism, the colonial language is everywhere. So you know, it's so it, it really is, is to deny that, that Zionists thought of themselves as participating in a world colonial project doesn't, just doesn't <laughs> basic intellectual honesty uh, it's it's there now. You can say it meant different things, or they meant it differently, etc. We can argue about this. It's not a very, you know, it's not a very convincing argument uh, for me. But to to explain it away as as meaningless when it is so much present seems to me very problematic. So what a lot of scholars do is just ignore this rather than engage. I mean Zionist historians, but uh, I, th- I think the question is: What does it mean, and why is it important? That's uh, that's that's a more interesting question. So you can say, okay, it's there, but why is it important, and why, what does mm-hmm. it change? And here there's various answers. I don't think it's you know. I, 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 having said that, I'm critical of a lot of the literature on settler colonialism and Israel Palestine, which is either uses it, throws it around. As a pejorative term, rather than use it seriously as an analytical tool, and B is incredibly simplistic in a way that is counterproductive. I think so. I think it's it's a strong analytical tool as, as long as you um, you you treat it seriously, and that's uh, yeah, that's that's what I'm trying to do. But I think that the the the, the final thing I would say is that the reason it's so important to talk about colonial in term in colonial terms is that colonization is ongoing. It's not something in the past. Mm -hmm. It's not the, you know, the early colonies of uh, Rishon LeZion and Zichon Yaakov or whatever. It's the ongoing reality of dispossession, mainly in in the West Bank, but not only. And that thing is not going to stop by itself, you know, and it's not it's not some kind of it doesn't happen by itself, it happens because it speaks to a logic and practice of taking over land and taking it over and changing its meaning. And that is, I think, written into state mechanisms in Israel. And that's what the state does, the state doesn't need to think in order to colonize. That is fundamental modus operandi. In order to stop colonize, the state needs to st- stop and think. And that, and I think if you say, well, I don't want to talk about colonial terms, but I do want a state-to-state solution, it's impossible, because you won't get to a state solution. Because Israel, unless you uh, face the colonizing logic that is guiding so much of Israeli practices and, and, and policies, so that's why it's it's absolutely crucial because it's it's never stopped.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. I appreciate um, the explanation of the importance of using it, and then also when it's when it's not being used uh, in the right ways. Because you are right when it comes to the context of Israel Palestine, the Palestinian struggle, and even trying to understand or kind of put into words uh, in academic articles, the the, the oppression and kind of outlining structural oppression and um, structures of power. Sometimes we misuse these terms in a lot of ways. Um, I mean, there's lots of other terms, as you said, peace, and you know, colonialism, anti-Semitism, all of it gets misused uh, in a variety of ways, depending on the person that is using that and their political ideology, right? I also wanted to ask you more, you, you started addressing your intellectual influences. I was wondering if you have like, maybe a suggestion for our listeners, for an author or a book, or you, who do you think had the most impact on your intellectual thinking and understanding of the question of, or on the issue of Palestinian struggle and um, the issue of Israel-Palestine?
1: I'll mention two. Uh, first on the on social history, Um, Salim Tamari from the Jerusalem Quarterly and the Institute of Palestine Studies has been incredibly influential on me. I mean, it's, you know, for me, he really is a model of how you work with sources, how you listen to uh, the sources and to people. He always works, he's always fascinated with individuals and how you read them against their social context, how you... um, you know, maintain a kind of uh, useful distance with the national framework. Uh, you know, it's very much a post-national, I think. Uh, and, and how you maintain intellectual honesty. I mean, that is something I, Tamara, is remarkable. How you say things that you're, uh, you're uncomfortable for you to say, and you acknowledge them, and that gives your writing so much more power. That intellectual honesty is, is um, and as a social historian, that you know, locates Palestine in a bigger context, which is so important. It's not an island. It's whether it's Ottoman or Arab or imperial context. It's so. So that's um, as a historian. In ter- conceptually, the person who I find most illuminating on Israel-Palestine at the moment is uh, Raif Zurek, the uh, political philosopher, philosopher of law, who Raif for me is again, a model of of intellectual honesty, of this kind of criticality that is not afraid to look at itself, not afraid to kind of ask questions, hard questions. You know, it's never about, just throwing slogans or but actually interrogating and when you interrogate the system of impression oppression, you may come up with things that are uncomfortable for yourself as well because Palestinians have been implicated in this system. So inevitably that you know they're not outsiders to it and I think that's uh, and that also and, and conceptually and also I thing I would say about uh, Zreik is that he, thinks dialectically. And that's the biggest promise, I think. You know, we have to think dialectically. We have to think through contradictions. The contradictions of the Israeli society, the contradiction of the within Zionism, the contradictions in which Palestinian society finds itself and so forth. Because things always move through contradictions, resolving themselves or pushing towards a certain direction. And if we think of things as if they work only with one dynamic that is one directional. I don't find it a convincing way to see the world. And it's with tensions that we find also potential, sometimes potential for horrible things, but sometimes potential for um, positive transformation. And and it's a very dark moment, I think, for Israel-Palestine because there's no um, obvious way forward and uh but it's a moment to think and reflect, and I think that's so Zrek is really, really important uh and he's writing about apartheid and about settler colonialism and settler and the native and and these are all uh, i I highly recommend and his lectures are also very good uh, if you uh, people can find them on twitter on uh, YouTube
0: my other question for you is related to challenges that you might be facing due to you know first of all your scholarship your opinions on the on israel palestine as well as your public engagement if you you know can think of anything that is personal or more or more general than that that would be fine
1: i mean it's the Challenges have been to to deal with what I saw as unfair and unsubstantiated personal criticism against me, and I've had to do it a number of times. And to try to do that, to try to maintain some kind of level of detachment and sanity and not to be affected by it too much. And the challenge is also how to continue working in this kind of context, because it's, uh, when you get sucked into these controversies, they consume so much of your time. And if you believe you have actually something positive to say, and your research research can actually help to think of a horrible situation in other, in new ways, which is you know a necessary condition i mean if you want to um, change a situation you have to think start to think about it differently then being sucked into these kind of public controversies is 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 uh, is harmful and kind of takes you away from from the real work and that's something that i'm kind of trying to keep in mind because it's um, and that's the risk of being involved more publicly involved intellectual that you find yourself commenting about the ongoing stuff. Somebody said this outrageous thing or that outrageous thing. And, and that kind of ongoing commentary, it's very difficult to say something um, really profound or interesting. I think beyond, you know, it it becomes a back, back noise. And I think that's kind of, uh, that's uh, something that I'm trying to avoid how to, if I am going to intervene, how do I do it in a way that kind of steps back and gives a certain horizon and gives a certain, you know, rather than going to the tit for tats. I mean, that's something that I've been trying to do in, in the classroom as well. I mean, when conversations become, reach a dead end, you always have to step back, you know, and that stepping back maybe gives you room to rethink. Situation and get out of that kind of cul de sac. And, and so, and that means often not saying things that you really want to say, <laughs> things really annoying or things that you find outrageous, horrible, and so forth. But I don't think, I mean, outrage is limited in its efficacy, I think, you know, and it becomes this kind of familiar thing and you know and when you reach a situation where you you know you know what a person is gonna say before they open their mouth even if they say all that they say the right things it becomes not interesting for me and I'm it's not my role as an academic if I have a role as an academic is to say stuff that people don't expect you know that to to add to the discussion dimension that people are haven't thought about not to reproduce in a slightly more eloquent way a very familiar and, and rehashed conversation. So, yeah, that's what I have in mind when I'm doing these interventions. But it's been, it's been you know, especially in the last few years, it's been challenging. It's, 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 it's not always easy.
0: This brings me to my last question. What kind of advice do you have you know, contemplating on the challenges that you're facing, the successes that you have accomplished, to younger activists or academics, you know, that are just starting to think about these issues or having to deal uh, with similar issues or are worried about dealing with these issues, and that's preventing them from, you know, deeper engagement?
1: I mean, I, I think, I think there's nothing to fear from honest and respectful and principled engagement, in the sense that it does it does come with a price, and I think that's really really important to say. And and if you write critically about Israel, and if you write about Israel Palestine, there will be a moment in which you probably will be called names and horrible things and so forth, and and maybe accused of anti-Semitism. I mean, there there is a, a segment of the public of public opinion, that sense that, for which any critical view, any significantly critical view on Israel equates with antisemitism, because Israel is the center of Jewish life though, if you're against Israel, you're against Jews. And and that means you will be accused of antisemitism or other things. Uh, so you have to anticipate it, but if you, I, I think if you're principled and respectful and so forth, And then people can see that and people will, you know, support you. I think think the more you react from, you shoot from the hip and you don't think before you act and and so forth, and you say things that then you're more likely to put yourself in risky situations. And and that's something that I think that it's good to reflect um, in advance. I do think that the, especially working with if you're working on western universities you do have to think about how israel palestine impacts jewish communities and how they get drawn to this discussion some of them you know jews get sucked into this conversation whether they want to or whether they don't want to but they're assumed as part of the conversation in a way that affects them and that's a challenge that is Unfair towards Palestinians. I can't think of any other colonized people who had to, when they do, when they resist their colonization, they have to think carefully about how this impacts a minority, a racialized minority. It's a very, very difficult challenge. It's it's a very unfair position that Palestinians are put in. You know, and when you that when you say things about, and you think you're saying it about Israel, but Jews will may understand them as threatening the words themselves. And I think I think it's as I said, it's unfair, but it's it's inevitable, because there are Jewish communities, and there are examples of stuff around Israel Palestine that is used against Jewish communities. So it adds a dimension to this conversation that I think people should be should anticipate, and should you know, it's an extra burden. I absolutely understand this. First of all, I think it's the right thing. If you if you uh, if you talk about the a Uyghur persecution of the Uyghurs in China, but your words will contribute to some kind of anti-Chinese sentiment you have to be aware of these things and it's not the only case in which this uh, happens but in Israel it's very very pronounced how if you talk about lgbt rights but suddenly this kind of gets translated into an islamophobic conversation mm. we have to be aware of how these things are used not because of we intend them to use in, in a certain way so that adds a dimension to the, the conversation but i think if you as long as you're principled, respectful, and so forth, people will see that and will, and you, and you'll be able to reject any kind of uh, unfair readings of what you say.
0: Mm-hmm. Thank you. I just want to give you a minute or two if you want to add anything that I missed or um, you, you know, if there's something that you want to talk about uh, before we conclude.
1: No, I think, I think I'm okay. Thank you.
0: I think think it's enough. (laughs) Okay, yeah, yeah. I wanna thank you for again sharing your story with us and your insights, and I wanna thank our listeners for tuning in. Um, And it was pleasure to actually have the chance to talk to you in person, even if virtually. Thank
1: you so much for the invitation. It was my pleasure and honor to speak with you.